Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, as we begin our working through this wonderful books, these wonderful books, we call them the pastoral epistles. This is Paul's instruction. He refers to Timothy and Titus as his sons, and of course, they're not his physical sons, but Paul started the churches where they got saved, and uh, I'll tell you, it's a privilege uh, to, uh, in my life to know pastors. Uh, Dr. Smith there, he calls me one of his preacher boys, and uh, I'm about the, well, I am the age of his oldest daughter, but I was called to preach under his ministry, and every time as important and as as great a job and responsibilities as Dr. Smith has, if I call him up, guess what? He takes my phone call or calls me back at his earliest possibility. And that's a relationship there that's wonderful to have. And this is what Paul has with Timothy. And he has left Timothy in Ephesus. The riots and all of those things that are described in the book of Acts are over. Paul is headed into Macedonia. He's leaving Timothy there, and he is warning Timothy, this is where you're going to have problems. This is where the trouble is coming in the church. And he says, verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. And so, as we read here, we see that he's told, listen, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. There's a lot of teaching goes on in the name of the Bible that all you're left with when you're done is more questions and wondering how in the world they got this out of that and and uh, the harder you study, the more confusing it gets. Uh, I often, we've often joked over the years here that uh, there's a lot of false scholarship out there. And here's how you tell the difference between false scholarship and true scholarship. False scholarship makes simple things complicated. True scholarship makes the deep things simple. If when you're done, you're impressed at the intelligence of the teacher, it's false scholarship. I remember Pastor Thompson often, it just looked like he opened his Bible and started preaching. And, you would, and, and he would just go through, and when he was done with the passage, you say, where did he get all that? Man, that, that is so simple. Anybody could do that. And as a young preacher boy, I tried to do that. And I found that it wasn't near as simple. You have to learn and you have to live before you can teach. Now, the world is full of would-be teachers. Every time we get a new media format, we have a whole new crop 
of people that come along as scholars and experts. Um, I'll tell you, on in the world of the blogosphere, I guess is what they call it, uh, where you can just sit down and you can type your thoughts and everybody comes and reads them. Uh, someone said, Pastor, you ought to read this blog and you ought to... You know, I tried that once or twice and I get so frustrated. I mean, everybody wants to tell you what they think. Now, do you know why everyone wants to tell you what they think? Because they want you to tell them how smart they are. Wow, I read this blog. It's the best one that I've ever read. Boy, he just knows everything about everything. Wow, that is, that's not Bible, my friend. God never, ever wants us to be impressed with the messenger. He wants us to be impressed with the message. Because the message comes from God. And so he's telling Timothy, I want you to beware of these fables and these endless genealogies and these theologies that minister more questions than they do answers. He said, now, the end of the commandment is charity. Now, charity is a wonderful word. We use that word today to talk about organizations that help other people. Now, if you have one of them newfangled Bibles, they take the word charity out there and they just put the word love in there. And they say, listen, the end of the commandment is love. Well, I want you to understand that the word charity was put in there on purpose because it has a little different shade of meaning than the word love. You can love somebody and get in a fight with them, can't you? You can love somebody and not like to be around that person. You can love somebody because God says you have to, and that's the only reason. But you cannot exercise charity in that same direction. Charity is love in action. That is what your love demands that you do. That's, if you'll take 1 Corinthians 13, they call it the love chapter, and leave the word charity in there, and just read love in action, every time you see the word charity, it'll put that chapter in an entirely brand new light, in the light that God intended it to be. Because God did not save you for feeling's sake. He did not save you just so you can understand these great things and sit and soak and sour in the love of God. You can do that. What you have to do, the end of the commandment is charity. If your love isn't demanding action on, your behalf, on, on the behalf and obedience to God, then you don't have the kind of love that should fulfill the word of God. It's, you haven't reached the end of the commandment. If you can sit and do nothing, that's not the end of the commandment. Charity is doing something because of love. It is love in action. And he says, listen, here's the end of the commandment. It is charity, but I want you to understand it's a special type of charity. It's charity out of a pure heart. 
and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. You know, there are people that do many good things because they care for other people. But are they saved? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved now, does it? He says, I want you to have charity out of a pure heart. And I want you to pray one of these Sundays, I'm going to unleash a sermon on you Sunday morning, but just haven't been able to get it yet, been thinking on this for years. The most selfish person in the world is the person that uses other people's problems to help them to heaven. They say, I need to do good work so I can be good to please God. And so they find your problem, and your problem becomes their stepping stone to heaven. You following me now? If you didn't have a problem, they wouldn't have a good work to get closer to God. If you're helping people so that you can be closer to God, that's not the reason we help people. That's not a pure heart. You help people because they need help. You help people because God has freed your life from the burden and struggle of your sin so that now you have freedom to use the life that God gives you to reach out and actually help someone else. Have you ever been helped by someone who had ulterior motives? Listen, uh, you know, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, we'll, we'll help this out. I don't want nobody else scratching my back, maybe my wife, but that's about it. You stay away from my back, amen? Uh, you got to watch out for that kind of stuff. It's dangerous and it's ungodly. True believers in Christ do not love and care for other people because of what they can get. But isn't that what 90% of religion is all about? Does anybody remember what Mother Teresa said just before she died? Her life was all about good works. And she said, I don't think I've done enough good works to please God. That was her testimony. It's in agreement with the Bible because there's no amount of good works that will make you pleasing to God. You've got to have a pure heart, a heart that's been saved by God. Everything that I have is because God's given it to me. Amen? Everything that I do, anything good that is accomplished is not because I'm a good person. It's because God is good, and I finally got out of the way, and he was able to accomplish something that was good through my life. That's the true testimony. Uh, how many of you remember from the Sermon on the Mount? I hope you can't forget by this time. Blessed are the what? Pure in heart. How do you get pure in heart? Well, let's start out. You get pure in heart by being poor in the spirit. Then you mourn. That mourning will lead you to stop trusting in your own ability and your own effort and start serving in God's. That's meekness. After you serve in God's effort, at God's command, in God's ability, 
Now, boy, oh boy, my mind is just not working here, I think. Just a second here. Yes, meekness, hunger and thirsting after righteousness. Then you start to desire the right things. Your base desires of your body, if we take it right down to the very bottom, the first thing is hunger, something to eat, something to drink. He says, your base desires are now going to be hungering and thirsting not after the things of this world, but after righteousness. It says they'll be filled. Once you get filled, then you can be pure in heart. But you can't be pure in heart until you go through that process. You see, it's the pure in heart that leads to the next step, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Now see, that's where we want to start. We want to start by getting something done. I mean, we are can do. Let's get it done here. Well, you can't do it the right way until you get God in you. Until you realize it's not you, poor in spirit, that you can't get what you need to please God. Until your sin causes you to mourn. I think, I think if there's any catching point today we have in our society, in our lives as Christians, is that one right there. We're easily mourning when we lose something that's valuable to us. But it's hard to mourn when we cause harm to another person. When, our, when we find out how, when we understand how offensive our sin is to God, it should cause us to mourn. Mourning, if you're father died, if your mother died, if someone you love very close to you passes away, it's not hard to mourn. It comes naturally, doesn't it? This is what God wants. When, this is where we should go. Does that mean we should walk around with tears in our eyes and crying all the time? No. We take that mourning to God and we start operating in his authority and his power instead of ours. That's meekness. Then we hunger and thirst for the right things. I'm sorry to re-preach Thursday night on Sunday night, but you got to get this because that's where the pure heart comes from, that our charity comes from. You see, it's, these are not unrelated topics. The Bible is one book. The pure in heart that Paul's talking about is the same pure in heart that Jesus preached about 30 or so years before. And it is what we need in our life if we are going to serve God. That charity has to come out of a pure heart. A heart that is single, a heart that desires to serve God is going to produce something. It's going to make something happen in our lives. And we get to this idea, the next part is a pure heart and of a good conscience. Now, conscience is an incredible thing, is it not? We always talk about that little voice inside. How many of you have ever been bothered by your conscience? Okay, if you're alive, you have. Somebody said, what is, the, what is my conscience? 
In its simplest form, it's the Holy Spirit of God reminding you of God's holiness. There is no human being that's ever lived that has not dealt with their conscience. Even in the darkest tribal regions of jungles and uh, aboriginal land in, in Australia, they still have a right and a wrong. They still have this thing called marriage. It's still wrong to steal another man's wife. Where did they get all those ideas? Well, I'll tell you where they got them from. They got them from God because he put them in the heart and soul of every living human being. We know when we do wrong. But our conscience is moldable at times, is it not? The Bible says you can sear your conscience to the point to where it will not talk to you. It will not convict you of wrong things that you have done. And you go to 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, and boy, I'll tell you, we don't have time to get through this whole thing in depth tonight, but in the Corinthian church, they were dealing with members of the church going into the temple, the false worship uh, um, uh, temples in Corinth, and eating meals in there. Uh, I'll tell you, there were Baptist churches in Corinth because they were looking for a cheap place to eat. Uh, that was their primary concern was, hey, I can buy this piece of meat at the, at the marketplace and it's only half the price of what I pay at the regular butcher. Now, if you're Baptist, that's important to you. Uh, you want to save money. You want to be careful. And I'm joking a little tongue-in-cheek there. But listen. The reason it was cheaper is because a lot of it was secondhand from the temple. When they had excess sacrifices that they couldn't offer and couldn't, uh, the priests couldn't take care of and consume, they would often just ship it out the side door down to this little marketplace and they sold it for a discount and it was a, it was a wonderful way to get cheap meat. The only problem was that meat had been dedicated to the different gods that we talk about Greek mythology, they actually believed that they were real people and worshipped them. And in the Corinth church, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and there were people saying, listen, those gods aren't real gods. They're, they're false images. They're, they're false gods. They're not true. There's nothing real in them. And so when you offer something to a false god, it's not real. Well... Paul says, yeah, you're absolutely correct. But read chapter 10. He says, what they offer to a false god, they're offering to the devil. And I wouldn't that you as a Christian take the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devil at the same time. It's confusion. And then one of the, well, again, we ought to get up a list of most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we'll get one that would have to be on that list of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. And I'll tell you the reason they don't, they don't understand the verse is, number one, they're not studying the context. Number two, they don't know English. And number three, they don't want the answer that's there. Look at verse 29. It says, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be partaker, why am I evil spoken of? For this 
that for which I give thanks. Now, verse 31 ought to clear it up a little bit, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I've heard preachers preach this passage. And they said, listen, you have no right to judge my conscience. If I think it's okay, it's okay. Now, leave me alone. That's not what that verse says. In fact, it's the direct opposite of what that verse says. He says, why, if my conscience doesn't bother me about this, why should I do something that's going to cause other people to judge my conscience as evil? That's what the passage says, exactly the opposite. I do not have the right to do things that are going to cause other people to think that my conscience is not being directed by the Holy Spirit of God. Let me ask you a question. Is it a sin to ride a motorcycle? No. Would, would it be a sin to put on uh, leather pants and a big chain belt? And, uh, and uh, is there any actual sin in dressing up like a biker? Now, my hair wouldn't be long, but if I tacked a ponytail to my helmet just so I could look the part, would I be doing anything wrong? But I've often given this example. If you pulled up in front of the church, and here's a big old chromed-out chopper. I mean, you got to stand on your tiptoes to reach the handlebars like this. And you came in, and I was dressed like a biker. Your first thought would probably be, I think pastor's lost his mind. Or he's trying to do some wacky sermon illustration. Have I sinned by doing any of these things? Absolutely not. But I've caused your conscience to think things about me that aren't true because the biker lifestyle is 100% opposed to the scriptures. Does that kind of illustrate the truth here? You see, my duty as a servant of Christ, I am to serve him charity out of a pure heart. But that pure heart has to be judged by a good conscience. You see, sometimes my conscience, because of who I am and I'm a sinful human being, doesn't think that there's absolutely anything wrong with this certain set of activities. But God gives us other people that we can say, now, wait a minute, I can't answer that. Now, Esther, sit down. All right. Now, we have the lives of other Christians to help us answer a good conscience between us and God. Your job is not to see how much questionable behavior you can allow in your life, but how many questions you can take away from other people by living right. If we dispense with this in our relationship with God, we're eventually going to see a change in our theology. You often hear me, some of the most difficult battles that I've ever faced as a pastor are not 
with people in this church, and I praise God for that. It's with other preachers. Preachers I grew up with, preachers I grew up respecting, and now all of a sudden they're changing everything that they believe. Why are they changing their doctrine? It's because they've put away a good conscience. I've heard them preach. You don't have a right to judge me. If I want to listen to my rock and roll music, I'll put Jesus' words to it. Music is a neutral medium through which messages are transmitted. I can listen to any kind of music I want as long as it's got good words. Wrong. There's identification in that music. That music didn't come from good and wholesome roots. Look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary if you want. Rock and roll music came from the reggae, which comes right from the voodoo and the witchcraft-oriented worship of the islands and eventually in Africa. That's the Oxford English Dictionary. That's not me. Uh, they don't have any access to grind. They're just trying to define and give you the history of the words. Jazz music. Jazz is another... The word jazz is synonymous with immorality. You study the life of any jazz musician. Anybody that's produced that music in any sort has been an immoral person. It's part of the music. You can't take that immoral music and put Jesus' words. And by the way, let's slam on a little country and western too and uh, some of the other genres that are just as bad. You do not Jesusify the world's music. That's what this answer of a good conscience is. It'll change your theology. Because if you accept it, you accept the people who produce the music. You accept the people who produce the music. They don't teach the Bible. I think... Uh, how many people know who Amy Grant was or is? One of the leaders in the contemporary Christian rock movement. You know what her, one of her favorite groups is? This is a group most of you will know from your pagan days, the Doobie Brothers. Now here's a Christian. How many people know what a Doobie is? It's the street slang for a marijuana cigarette. This was the name of the group. We're high on pot. This is Amy Grant's favorite music group. Her quote, and this goes back to the early 80s when I was still a student, was I like to grab a beer, curl up on a rug on the floor, and listen to the Doobie Brothers. You accept the music she produces, you're going to accept the life that she lives. When we put away a good conscience, it's going to lead us in a direction that's not right. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. Your charity has got to be out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now, that word unfeigned is a word that we do not use much today in modern English. The word feign means to fake. It means to live 
with pretense. Somebody says, how are you doing today? Fine. Everything's fine. That's feigning. Now, don't go to the other extreme. Do you have two hours? I'm going to need at least that long to tell you everything that's wrong with me. Neither one of those attitudes are Christian, my friend. But we're not to pretend. We're not to walk around gearing up our faith. I'm going to church. I'm going to enjoy it. I know he's going to preach too long. I know he is. But I'm going to put up with it. I'm going to smile. I'm going to make sure that it's okay. Nobody's going to guess that I am feeling the way I am inside. That's a feigned faith. I'm going to go pass out tracks. Yes, I am. I'm sure I am. I am. I hate this track stuff, but I'm going to go. Listen, if we feign our faith, here's another Bible word called hypocrisy. Now, there's not a person in this room, myself in the number, that haven't been hypocrites at one time or another in our life. It is natural for the human being to be a hypocrite. That's what's natural. What's unnatural is to serve God because you love God. You've got to let God's love fill your life before you can do that. You've got to get a pure heart. You can't be wanting God and... Fill in the blank. That's not a pure heart. If you sear your conscience, if you put away your conscience, and Paul's going to mention that several times as we go through here. He said, they put away a good conscience concerning the faith and they made shipwreck. And you're going to destroy your life when you remove that level of consciousness of desiring to serve God and live in such a way that your life does not generate questions, your life removes other people's excuses. Sometimes I I keep threatening, I'm going to just sit down and write the story of our church and the ministry here. I think I finally found a title, we'll call it Beyond Ridiculous. You know, they tell you you can't raise a family in New York City. Uh, I think 11 kids is beyond ridiculous, how about it? Uh, and you stop and you think about all the other things that God has done for our little church. He gave us this huge building when we only had 40 members. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But now we've got three churches meeting here and we're running out of room. Uh, I'll tell you what, we, we enjoy what God's doing, even if it is beyond ridiculous. Amen? But let's take away people's questions. Let's take away people's excuses. Let's not give someone a reason to be worldly. Let's give them a reason to leave the world. Amen? Someone from Bob Jones University, if you read the New Sword, just wrote a book on alcohol in the Bible where it says God does not condemn a drink. He condemns drunkenness. Now, if old Bob Jones Sr. could hear that, and I'm sure he has from heaven... Uh, he, I'm, I would imagine he's screaming, Lord, let me get back there and straighten things out of my school. 
And the Lord's saying, it's not your school anymore. If it were your school, they wouldn't be teaching this slop. You see, we're not trying to see how close we can get to the world. We're trying to see how close we can get to God. And Paul's warning Timothy in this church in Ephesus, You've got to live a life that is characterized by this word charity. Your love's got to have action. You've got to have a good conscience and faith unfeigned. James chapter 2, and we'll be done tonight. Let's just go there for a moment. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, hated the book of James. In fact, he didn't want to even translate it and put it into his Bible. And the reason was, was because Martin Luther didn't understand the Bible. He was a Catholic monk. He couldn't understand much of it. There were certain things he did understand, and he was certainly a great person and, and, and all of those things, but anyone who would condemn the book of James, and James chapter 2 in particular was his least favorite passage in all the Bible, because he kept saying that, listen, it's all of faith. It's not of works. He was trying to combat the works-based salvation that was in the Roman Catholic Church that he had been raised with. James chapter 2, and right here, let's go down to, to verse 18. We're just going to skip through a lot of this. It says, well, let's read verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, simply what he's saying is, if your faith doesn't work, maybe it's not a living faith. How many of you would buy a car that doesn't work? I did. I was going to fix it up. My wife well remembers the story. That was one of the dumbest things I ever did. There's a reason why cars don't work. I thought for sure I was just going to have to rebuild a few things and bought it in the dark. I mean, you talk about dumb. That's what young people do sometimes. I mean, we just do dumb things. I had to replace the entire engine. Finally, I had to pull the engine out of that body and put it into another car, and the electrical system didn't match. I mean, it was just a mess. Don't, don't be sold a bill of goods. If your faith doesn't produce something, it's not real faith. Real faith works, but it works because it's real faith. You don't get works to get real faith. You see the difference? It's just that little point that Mr. Luther missed that... He, he said, listen, uh, in, in my church where I was raised and I know it's wrong, you can't work your way to heaven, so therefore how in the world can we have this in our Bible? Wrong! If you have real faith, it produces real works. 
Real faith works. It does something. If any man be in Christ, he is what? New creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul's warning Timothy. Timothy. The end of the commandment. If anybody's teaching anything in that church, it ought to produce charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. If this is not being produced, you tell that teacher to shut up and not to teach in the church because that kind of teaching is not what the kind of teaching is supposed to be going on in a church that names the name of Jesus Christ. Just a little bit of history and we'll be all done tonight. Back in the 1840s, little Baptist history here, there was one Baptist organization in the United States. It was at first called the Philadelphia Organization, then it was called the Triennial Convention because they met every three years. And at that time, in the 1820s and 30s, almost every Baptist church in the United States of America would come or send representatives to those meetings, and they were doing some incredible things. One of the things they were doing was raising money to support missionaries. That was unheard of. If God wanted to save the heathen, he will do it without your help, was the philosophy. The Baptists were never Calvinists. Some of them were, but most of them were saying, listen, we got to do something. We're going to send those missionaries. And they provided for them. Well, there came up some issues. The churches down south believed that slavery was okay. The churches up north said, no, slavery is sinful and wrong. And they started arguing, and in 1845, they split the Fellowship of Baptist Churches into the Northern and Southern Baptist Conventions. We still have the Southern Baptist Convention today. Uh, I think they apologized for slavery a couple years ago. Uh, their president did. But the Northern Baptists were the ones that had the bigger problem. You see, they thought if they could solve the issue of slavery, that they would make this a perfect society. And so they substituted the doctrine of abolition for the doctrine of the gospel. They stopped emphasizing the word of God and a pure conscience and a faith unfeigned, and they said, we've got to do everything we can to stop slavery. Well, God was moving and slavery was stopped. It cost 600,000 American lives over nearly four, over a little over four years. Quite a price to pay. And that's because men on both sides were American. Brother fought against brother. But the Northern Convention went on. And today, if you find any of those northern, they now change their name to American Baptist churches. Most of them, you will never, ever hear a salvation message. You're going to hear, well, you need to go out and help people. 
Well, yeah, your faith needs to work. But if it isn't rooted in the words of God, even if you do the right things, it's still meaningless. We live in a society of extremes. From one to the other. Swing back and forth and forth and back. Paul's telling Timothy, listen, don't get on the pendulum. Get in the Word of God. Just teach the truth. If that truth that's being taught isn't producing charity, then there's problems with the teaching. If that truth isn't coming out of a pure heart and a good conscience and real faith in a real God, there's something wrong. That's why we don't worry about a lot of theological questions. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? They've argued that thousands of years in monasteries. Trying to figure out who the sons of God are in Genesis chapter 6 and whether Adam and Eve were created with belly buttons because they were created and they weren't born. I mean, people sit around and argue these things. They gender more questions and strife than they do anything else. I don't need to know who the Antichrist is. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm going to be in heaven when he shows up. He can't identify himself as the Antichrist until the church is taken out anyway. So let's not worry about ministering questions. Let's worry about obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is warning Timothy to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. Lord, we just ask that you would help us. We pray that each one of us here would look into our own heart and use your word to examine it to see whether it be pure. That we would literally stop and block out the noise and the hubbub of the world and ask God if our conscience is clear or if we just drowned it out. Lord, we ask that our faith would be real, that we could prove it with the Word of God, that we could prove it with the lives we live. Lord, this is the end of the commandment. This is the way the Christian ought to live. And Lord, my prayer is that it would be true of each one in this room tonight. Lord, if there's someone in our midst who's not saved, Prayer would be that they would be willing to stop and ask someone to show them what the Bible says about salvation. That they would not leave this place until they know heaven is their home. We ask you to do your work in hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And we'll just.